0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the We Remember podcast, a companion podcast that goes along with Griffin Communications' special 25th anniversary coverage of the Oklahoma City bombing. Hopefully, by the time you're listening to this podcast, you've watched our series of stories that we've aired as a part of this 25th anniversary TV special. You can check those stories out on our website, newson6.com, and on our News on 6 app. I'm Dave Davis. Joining me today is Craig Day. Craig, thanks. Hi, Dave. Good to be here. It's it's great to have you in. And Craig, just to kind of start things off, because I think it'll inform the rest of the podcast. You're from Oklahoma. Where were you on April 19th, 1995?
1: Born and raised in Oklahoma. But at that time, I was working at KXII, a TV station in Sherman, Texas, which covers uh, a few counties in North Texas, but primarily a lot of counties in Southern Oklahoma. And I still lived in Oklahoma at the time. So obviously, uh, the Oklahoma City bombing happened it it really touched my heart and and uh, even though I was out of state you know I, I covered the Oklahoma City bombing from from a distance I was not in Oklahoma City but obviously paying very close attention to what was going on and what was happening
0: do you remember were you working that day were you at home what were kind of some of the images that you remember from that Wednesday morning
1: You know, that's the thing. I, You know, we work weird hours in the TV news business, obviously. And so I worked a night shift. And I was at home, actually, with my one-year-old, Andrew, at the time. And I get a phone call from my wife, who was at work. She worked days at her job, and I worked nights. And so Andrew was already kind of in bed with me. She When she left for work, she plopped him in bed with me. And and, uh, she called and said, turn the TV on. There's been a bombing in Oklahoma City. I'm like, what are you talking about? And, of course, I was sound asleep when she called, so I was like, wait a minute, what? So I th- turned the TV on, and the coverage had already started. And uh, I couldn't believe it. I just sat there holding my one-year-old in my arms on the verge of tears, watching what was happening and, and wondering what, what in the world is going on here? You know, why Oklahoma? Why Oklahoma City? Why, you know, why did this happen? What? And so at that point, I kind of reacted more or less from a journalist and reporter mode and more from a dad mode because that was in the mode I was in at that point. I wasn't thinking about getting on the air. I was, you know, I had responsibilities as far as taking care of my son and, and you know, I'd have to figure out that in a, in a little bit once I processed the information and what was happening in Oklahoma City. I'd you know, call the babysitter, see if I could bring him a little early, you know, I got to get into work. But at that point, rather than reacting as a journalist and, and uh, a reporter, I just reacted as a dad and as an Oklahoman. And I just could not believe what was happening. At that time as well, I had a sister that worked downtown. So, you know, obviously I was scrambling around to call her to make sure she was okay. And she said, you know, got a hold of her, she was fine. But she worked at a medical facility, and they were they were boxing up supplies to send to the bombing site. And so everybody at that time just sort of changed. Either they responded to the emergency in the Oklahoma City area, or they tried to figure out a way to help those first responders and those medical professionals and all the people that were responding and helping. And, of course, we saw that in the coming days and the coming weeks, too, um, how Oklahomans stepped up to make a difference. But, you know, check... You know, just had to process it at first and then check on my family, you know, make sure they were okay. And
0: then, uh, then figure out, okay, now I got to go into work and put on that reporter and anchor hat. And for folks maybe listening to this outside of Oklahoma, how far away from downtown Oklahoma City did your family live? The place that you were from, not that far. I mean, Oklahoma is a big state, but you didn't grow up that far from Oklahoma City.
1: No, I grew up in Seminole, which is about an hour away from Oklahoma City. So, but, you know, I had a you know, one sister who, again, that I mentioned was I knew, working in the Oklahoma City area. Another sister at that time was a pediatric nurse in Norman. So, uh, you know, I knew they were far enough away other than the one sister. I thought, okay, maybe she, I don't know where she worked downtown. I just knew she worked close to downtown. She was far enough away, but, uh, you know, not to worry about physical safety necessarily, uh, once I found that out, but, uh, it was interesting talking to her as far as what they were doing as, you know, their workplace, you know, trying to get supplies and, you know, things that they thought first responders might need. But, yeah, you know, I grew up an hour from Oklahoma City. And, and you know, Oklahoma, especially at that point, was a was a small state as far as population goes. Everybody knows somebody who knows somebody kind of deal that was affected by the Oklahoma City bombing.
0: You've worked here at News on 6 how long now? I've been here 18 years. So 18 years here at Channel 6 and longer than that in, in television. Has there been any other story where you can remember you thought of it as a dad first and not a journalist, had a similar reaction to when you heard the news in 1995?
1: You know, probably, of course, my family and my children are always top of mind. So I would say, yes, there have been stories where I thought of a dad as a dad first. Uh, I mean obviously. Mm-hmm. Um to that extent probably not. Yeah. Um you know every every time there's tornado season and you're you're working and then you you hear okay my community, my town where we live is under a tornado watch family comes first. You know, I call them and say hey, you need to be watching TV right now, you know. Yeah. When the kids were little, put your put your football helmet on, put your baseball helmet on, you know, get in the closet, you know, why, you know, and I, then I explained the reason why. So family is always top of mind, but probably never in such a, just a striking way. And I was still relatively new at that time to the news business. Um, I've worked in broadcasting and radio and TV since I was 17 years old, but at that point, a relatively young reporter, you know, a relatively, uh, new anchor So, so yeah, you know, I, I was still kind of new to the, the whole news business, so to speak, starting out as a photographer and then working my way into reporting and then working my way into anchoring. So it took just a bit to, to process what was going on and okay, you know, but, but to answer your question, yes, I, I, I think we all respond as parents and husbands and, and, you know, that, that sort of thing first, but then, probably not to such an extent as the Oklahoma City bombing.
0: I mean, here 25 years later, it's like it was yesterday. Yeah, it's uh, I can I can remember it. And I was much younger. I was I was a kid then. I was eight years old. And I I can remember living in Ohio uh, that and just all the fallout after it. It's just you talk to people. And speaking of talking to people, you know, you've spoken to someone for your story on the griffin communication channel of families news nine and news on six and in your story your piece you specifically speak to timothy mcveigh's lawyer it was it was a fascinating conversation talking to stephen jones as as you know
1: we all kind of sat around a big conference room and we all had these ideas for what what kind of stories do we need to tell? Yeah, for the pitch the,
0: meeting that was maybe yeah. in January or February, yeah. something
1: like that. We've been yeah. t- thinking about this program for a long, long time. And so we all sat around and we, we kind of pitched ideas. And obviously, you want to talk to survivors and you want to talk to the family members of those who lost a loved one. Uh, you want to talk to first responders to get their thoughts. You know, you want to talk to, uh, you know, state leaders at the time, that, that kind of thing. But... Then I thought, you know, something interesting and out of the ordinary, I think, let's talk to Stephen Jones, the attorney who represented Timothy McVeigh, and get his thoughts 25 years later. And so that's the assignment, so to speak, that I was given. And so he was very gracious, very, very inviting. And, uh, you know, I wasn't sure because I've never interviewed Stephen Jones before, but he said, come on over to my law office in Enid. So that's what we did. Uh, photojournalist Michael Blair and I went there and, and talked to him. And, you know, you go into that really with only a handful of questions because I really just wanted to get his, his take on 25 years later and then if he could share any, any personal thoughts about Timothy McVeigh's mindset and personality at the time. And I wasn't sure he was going to answer those questions, that particular question about Timothy McVeigh because of attorney-client privilege which doesn't end with death. You know, it didn't end with Timothy McVeigh's execution. However, he, he was very forthcoming with his thoughts 25 years later and a, a little bit about Timothy McVeigh's mindset and who he was as a person because Timothy McVeigh waived those rights.
0: The and, attorney, then that's what was so interesting in your story. So Timothy McVeigh waived his attorney-client privilege, and that's why Stephen... Jones can talk about.
1: Right. He can talk about the case uh, or his relationship and some of those uh, conversations he had with Tim McVeigh now because Timothy McVeigh essentially waived those rides by going public with sixty minutes and doing some other interviews, you know before his execution. So it was a fascinating conversation uh, to get uh, to get that angle and also just to hear to hear Stephen Jones's thoughts twenty five years later. And, you know, he told me he's like, he never expected he would get called to represent Timothy McVeigh, never went through his mind.
2: I was surprised, although curiously, my wife had told me that shortly after it became known that someone had been arrested, she said, Jonesy, they're going to call you to defend him. And I said, Cheryl, that's ridiculous. I mean, they'll have, I'm not even on the panel of the CJA panel and uh, they'll have some um, out-of-state public defender, or federal public defender. Uh, that's how those things are handled. And she insisted to me that she said, no, I'm telling you they will call you. And the night I was called, the very first thing I said to her when she came in the house, after she asked me why all the lights were out, I said, uh, Booter, uh, my nickname for her, the call that you were afraid would come has come. And she was right and I was wrong.
1: So his wife was right, which, of course, is usually 100 percent of the time, right?
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Our wives are right. Right. Um, So, Craig, tell me about Stephen Jones. And, you know, of course, we'll get to Timothy McVeigh. But he was an he's an Oklahoman representing, as you said in your piece, one of the most hated men in America at the time. How did he deal with that as a person? He said it was not
1: a tough decision. He did consult with his family and his coworkers uh, just about concerns about safety, because at that point there were so many things that were unknown. But he feels like it was not a difficult decision because he has a constitutional uh, requirement. We all have a constitutional requirement to provide an attorney for those who can't afford to hire someone to defend them.
2: I considered uh, that I had been asked by the court to represent him that I had a constitutional duty to do that unless there was some conflict, and there was no conflict uh, that I could see. And I had practiced law and believed uh, early in my career in the so-called red flag case, that lawyers had a duty to take controversial cases. And certainly this was a controversial one. it's the largest mass murder in American history. So um, I thought it was right to accept the appointment And it was important that the accused, whoever they were, receive a fair trial. And I thought that my representing him would help facilitate that.
1: So he said from that perspective, it was not a difficult decision. Now, that turned into two and a half years. And I said, how difficult was it on you physically and emotionally? And he said probably more difficult than he ever thought it was going to be at the time he was doing it. At the time he was doing it, it was just something that he felt bound and responsible and required to do, and it was the right thing to do. Um, He said he never had any difficulty with Oklahomans giving him a hard time, you know, threatening him or trying to intimidate him during that time, because as you mentioned, Tim McVeigh was the the most hated man in America.
2: I had an apartment in downtown Oklahoma City. And whenever I was in the city, which would be at various times and various lengths, I walked from my apartment to the office. I was never accosted or harassed or stalked or or pointed out uh, in some derogatory fashion. Um, People would see my name on the door. No one came into my office and threatened me or bothered me. And the same in Enid. I live in the same house uh, for years after the case ended. My office remained in the same building, same church, same Rotary Club. I was not uh, harassed or stalked. To me, that indicated that Oklahomans thought that he deserved a vigorous defense, and they did not hold it against me that I had tried to do that.
1: And he's no stranger to controversial cases. He's had a number of controversial cases in in his career up to this point. Uh, Roger Dale Stafford is a, you know, Person who killed a number of people in Oklahoma that he represented. Mm. Um, he'd been active in political areas as well, but but nothing I think really rivaled representing Tim McVeigh uh, during the Oklahoma City bombing trial.
0: Of course, with our stories that we've put together, we have three to three and a half minutes to tell it, and there's a lot of things that we can't include. I wanted to include if if you were cool with this one of your personal stories about one of your coworkers in Sherman because we didn't get to hear about this on TV and I really thought when you said this in the pitch meeting I was just blown away tell me the story about someone you knew who had run across Timothy McVeigh years earlier years before 1995
1: yes um, Michelle Roush was a was a reporter who was working at the station where I worked in Texas and again it covered north Texas southern Oklahoma and she went on to have a long broadcast career she now teaches journalism she came in, and when all this happened, when Timothy McVeigh was arrested, she she came in the newsroom, and I was I was an anchor then, and she said, "You know what? I think I interviewed Timothy McVeigh." Okay, what you you think you interviewed Timothy McVeigh? And and then she's like, "Yeah, I think I I think I interviewed Timothy McVeigh." And it was uh, I was outside the Branch Davidian compound, and there was a guy, you know, outside his vehicle. I, I, If I remember right, it may have been like his pickup or something. He was sitting on the tailgate or something. And he had a lot of anti-government propaganda, you know, bumper stickers and different things. And uh, she said, I think I interviewed him about the Branch Davidian compound. And I was like, go home. Do Do you still have that stuff? She goes, yeah, I got a box. You know, at that time, we were all... Pretty much fresh out of college, so we had a lot of our college stuff in boxes in our apartments or houses or whatever.
0: No YouTube, no, no, not at all.
1: <laughs> no cloud storage, so, but we had it. So she runs to her apartment and comes back with the actual article she had written, and and her hands just sort of were shaking. Oh. And sure enough, she had interviewed Timothy McVeigh. And so once that kind of became public. We pretty much took her out of the reporting rotation for a couple of days because once it was found out that she had interviewed Timothy McVeigh, of course the BBC was calling and all the major networks were calling and everybody wanted to interview her. Sure. So she pretty much was just, I mean, she was swamped with interview requests. And here's why. She was, to the best of my knowledge, the only journalist, even though a student journalist, the only journalist to document Timothy McVeigh's anti-government sentiment and have it documented his anti-government sentiment before the Oklahoma City bombing
0: that's she remarkable. had a picture of him
1: everything for the the story you know had it the quotes everything that she had written was well documented so that's that was very important for the case and so in fact she was she testified in Denver during his trial to show that link before the Oklahoma City bombing of Timothy McVeigh to his anti-government sentiment a lot of it set off by the standoff at the Branch Davidian compound in Waco. And so now okay, in yes. the in the memorial museum there's a section that has her picture up and all the information about that and it's it's a pretty, pretty remarkable Thing for a college journalist at that time to be associated with such a high-profile case, and and to be thrown into that spotlight, you know, internationally, and then to go have to testify uh, in the during the trial. Uh, Michelle Roush is again, as Michelle Roush you give, deserves a tremendous amount of credit. I mean. Number one, I mean, she followed her even at that age, a young journalist's instincts, and found somebody to interview while she was in Waco, and then what in the world it turned out to be Timothy McVeigh, and so she she played a, a unique role in all of this, not just as a as a you know somebody
0: covering it act after the fact. Well, I wanted to return as well to to Stephen Jones because you've talked to him and he's. Pretty far along in his career. He, he's still a working attorney, yes. and he's still out there, you know, doing his thing. Yeah, he's he's still working. You know, an, an interesting thing
1: that I didn't bring up is when he was assigned the Oklahoma City uh, bombing case and to represent Timothy McVeigh, he, he knew this is going to just be all-absorbing of my life and the lives of all the staff that he had and his fellow attorneys that worked with him. So they gave away all their clients to other— attorneys. They focused solely on representing Timothy McVeigh, and that was for two and a half years. And so when the trial was over, he, to a certain degree, had to kind of rebuild his law practice, which I found fascinating. You know, I thought my conversation with him might last, you know, maybe 10 minutes or so. We ended up taking much longer time. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, we can't include everything in a three-minute story, which three minutes in TV time is a long time. It, we is. Know. We, it is. We're blessed to get that. Um, but he, uh, I ended up talking to him much longer than I anticipated because it was just fascinating hearing his, his, you know, his rem- memory, remembrances, so to speak, of, of representing him. And, of course, there's a lot of detail we could have gone into in talking to him. Again, it was a two-and-a-half-year, tri- you know, situation – but, you know, we don't go into some of the other uh, other things in the story. You know, Stephen Jones th- thinks that, you know, more people were involved in the Oklahoma City bombing, which he brought out at trial. Mm. Um, you know, I, I didn't get a chance really to delve into that because a 25-year anniversary piece is not, not the time to bring up those kinds of things. You know, it's, it's water under the bridge, so to speak. I, I, for the most part, I wanted to just talk to him to just get his general thoughts on the anniversary. And, and he says the Oklahoma City bombing is like Oklahoma's Pearl Harbor. And he said it should never be forgotten. We should always remember what happened. The, n- number one, the people who lost their lives and their families, but also those who were injured and those who suffered economic harm. Because, you know, the bombing damaged hundreds of buildings downtown in mm-hmm. Oklahoma City. And so the economic impact is tremendous from the bombing. Number one, the lives lost, obviously. Number two, you know, those injured and lost loved ones. But also, it just it just changed Oklahoma. It, it really did. It changed uh, Oklahoma City. And so he said it should always be remembered. And now we're hitting the generation of people that might be listening to this podcast that maybe weren't even born when the Oklahoma City bombing happened. So, you know, and I, I I came very close to being a history teacher rather than a journalist. Um, I love history, and and so we should not forget that history. We should remember that history. The challenge now for all of us moving forward, and what we kind of hope to accomplish as a company with these special broadcasts, is let's take it out of the of the history book. Let's try to make it real for people again. The emotion, the tension, the the different things that happened and that people felt that day, that's what we have a responsibility.
0: I think all
1: Oklahomans have a responsibility to tell that story.
0: Well, Craig, thank you so much for talking with us, and thank you for putting together really a, a marvelous piece, and I hope people get a chance to see it. Well, I
1: appreciate being here, and I, I can't, can't leave without just saying how proud I was of how Oklahoma responded to the Oklahoma City bombing. You know, we've overcome a lot as a state, uh, living through the Dust Bowl during the Depression. Um, you know, it's one of those things where it just brought a lot of Oklahomans together who acted selflessly who stepped up to make a difference, who volunteered their time. And it really was kind of the origination of, you know, that the, the spirit of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Standard, of where that kind of began. But the Oklahoma Standard's kind of been with us even before the Oklahoma City bombing. But it really just reinforces that. So it, it really, you know, as, as terrible and shocking as it was, it makes you proud to be an Oklahoman to see how people responded and how we respond now after tornadoes and wildfires and even COVID-19, how people are stepping up to make a difference. Yeah. And that's one of the things that, that I want to leave you with, which is how proud I was to be an Oklahoman and how proud I was to to see Oklahomans stepping up to make a difference.
0: Craig, perfectly said. Again, thank you so much. And we hope that you at home listening have a chance to check out these stories on our website and on our app. The original stories that we're kind of talking about, those three-minute, three-and-a-half-minute pieces that we've put together. And also, we hope you get a chance to listen to our other series of podcasts here on our News on 6 channel. Wherever you listen to podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and more, thank you for listening today.